0: In addition to all the focus on various industry applications of artificial intelligence and emerging technology, here at Tech Emergence there has always been a heavy focus on the ethical and societal impacts of emerging technology. In fact, that's sort of the impetus uh, to begin the company in the first place. Uh, in this particular episode, we get back to talking about ethics uh, with someone I've got to, uh, gotten to know quite well over the course of the last few years and meet in person on a number of occasions. That is Wendell Wallach, who is author of A Dangerous Master, a recent book uh, published on the topic of technology governance. Wendell is a fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology. And in this particular interview, we talk about the problems of governing technologies that, whether we like it or not, are often developing faster than we could possibly assess them, their potential goods and their potential ills. Uh, How do we handle that? How might governments of the future handle that? This is something that Wendell's thought about in great depth in both his book and his other writings and speaking. Uh, and It was an interesting interview on my end, I hope something that you'll draw value from as well.
1: So Wendell, um when it comes to governing emerging technology, I know an important distinction that, that we should probably address earlier rather than later is the one that you make in, in your most recent book, and uh, which I think had been made before, around hard and soft governance. Um, what is the difference between hard and soft governance?
2: Well, that's a great question, Dan. I mean, first of all, let me say that our approach to governance of emerging technologies is an attempt to be comprehensive rather than piecemeal, which is really what happens in most and so far. When most people think of, of governmental oversight or oversight in any form, they think almost totally of governmental laws and agencies that are set up to enforce those laws. So that you might think of as hard governance. And what we try and stress in our approach is what we call soft governance. So soft governance includes a wide variety of different mechanisms. So that's everything from industry standards to professional codes of conduct to insurance policies. Just a vast array of different mechanisms that can be brought into play to oversee various concerns that might arise with different technologies or or even non-technological industries. And the real point to, to deal with in all this is, where possible, we would like to see soft governance mechanisms enacted, and we'd like to minimize the role of hard governance. But the simple fact is that when you have hard governance, you have ways of enforcing what you are demanding upon people. So it's a lot harder to break the rules than it is with soft governance. So you can't totally avoid hard governance altogether. But our thought was that if we had an oversight body, a governance oversight body, what we call governance coordinating committees, that what they could do is look for solutions to the various problems within a broad array of different mechanisms favoring soft governance mechanisms, and then only turning to government laws and agencies if that was the only way to enact an effective way to manage various gaps in oversight. So the advantage of that might be that you would go to the legislature and say okay we first looked at every other conceivable way of managing this and since there isn't another conceivable way of managing it we're going to have to enact some kind of laws and they therefore might be enacting those laws on the other hand you might be able to pressure industry to put in place some soft government's oversight because they would feel that if they don't then they're going to have to deal with government with government regulations, which can be uh, much more bureaucratic. Yep. And once they're put in place, they're pretty hard to get rid of.
1: Got it. Okay. So, and and what are some examples of, uh, before we even move into how, uh, I mean, the, the big topic being, you know, the, the fast-moving technologies, AI and biotech and nanotech and so many others, especially as, as things are not slowing down anytime soon, how do we keep on top of all that? What are examples of that sort of happening with soft governance now? In other words, where is soft governance having a, a role and a place in, in sort of enacting change and, and serving the role of, of monitoring technology as it is already in the world?
2: Well, I can give you a great example. So um, the, the government, the US government enacted a national nanotech initiative and the idea was that they were not only funding research into nanotechnologies but they were going to help set standards, and they were very slow in setting those standards, which was quite frustrating for industry because they wanted to jump into the development of nanotechnologies, but they were very concerned that after they jump in, made major investments that they would encounter some forms of, of oversight or regulations that would be problematic for them. And this frustration continued for a long period of time. And finally, um dupont decided that he was going to join together with the environmental defense fund so think of the environmental defense fund as one of the most frustrating P- ngos yeah. non-governmental <laughs> organizations for dupont and in effect they are joining together with a body that you might think of as their enemy and they say well let's work together and let's formulate together some Guidelines for nanotech research to ensure that it will not be harmful to the environment. And together they came up with what is sometimes referred to as the DuPont EDF nanotech um, guidelines. And they were not only put together for DuPont, but they became the de facto standard for many other people within the industries. And in fact, DuPont and the EDF even translated them into Chinese so that the Chinese could follow those guidelines. Hmm. So that's an example where guidelines were set up not by the government itself, but by the key players in both NGOs and industry, in terms of ensuring that um, that a, the development of a technology would would be sensitive and would move ahead.
1: Yeah, and, and um in terms of the potential applications for that in the in the future, um, where are some of the areas that you might see soft governance maybe being required in, in even the next, let's say, 10 or 20 years for the governance of certain kinds of technology so that they, too, don't get out of hand? I mean, nanotech and the environment is a concern. Um, you know, nanotech and, and you know, the, the harm to people potentially is, is a concern. There's a myriad concerns, I suppose, with nanotech, but it's certainly not the only technology that could have such ramifications where do you see the 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 need for that kind of action and regulation i suppose on on that softer level um with other technologies what are ones that are on your mind
2: well i think it's going to arise with nearly every technology for different reasons so you know some have environmental concerns some have concerns about what is appropriate um use of human subjects, both in experimentation and how to treat humans appropriately if your technology is interacting with them. So think about robots going into the home and into the commerce of daily life. You might have things like robot caregivers or or robots that were robot nannies that played with your children. What would be the standards to ensure that they would be safe? and how would it be judged or certified that a particular product was safe? So you could do this through an industry oversight board rather than through governmental oversight. And in fact, one of the nice things that you did, if you did this as an industry oversight is you could keep changing the standards as the technology changed. something that would be very laborious to do with a governmental agencies which become locked in very quickly. But people with the industry may recognize that something that they were concerned with, let's say last year or two years ago, had already become an industry standard and they didn't need to be so concerned about that. But because the technology had changed, these robots would be at interacting with the homebound and elderly in a very new way and therefore would need to be tested. And consider that testing, that testing does it have to be repeated every time that the feature set changes yeah. for a, let's say a robot in the in the home? That would be pretty difficult. And the industry would perhaps be more sensitive to when something had really taken place that required testing for the new iteration of the device or when it was really a modification that was more like a bug fix.
1: Yeah. And so the the industry might have a a better feel on that than some higher-up arbitrary bureaucracy in some sense.
2: Exactly. And, um, you know, and the industry could set that up in a way where, what should I say, it was funded by the industry. It served the industry's needs because it certified which devices were safe or which devices acted appropriately at the same time as the oversight body wouldn't be controlled by any Mm -hmm. one party within the industry.
1: Got it. So uh, new, in, uh, numerous benefits, at least from, from taking some kind of that approach. I know in oh. your more recent book and, and with some uh, more recent research as well, and uh, your current kind of Fulbright work too, uh, you're, you're fleshing out the nuances of a potential combination of hard and soft governance working together, uh, in, in a particular way and, and kind of applying the concept of a steering committee, go into a little bit of nuanced detail as to how you're forming that, what you're calling that, um, and, and why it might work a little bit better than what you see going on today in terms of technological uh, um, kind of jurisprudence.
2: Well, my work has been more about the vast array of things that can go wrong with emerging technologies and how we can reap the benefits and diffuse those potential harms. So governance coordinating committees just become one way of, of approaching that. I mean, there are other ways such as just funding research within industry and the sciences to address the harm simultaneously with building the devices that are beneficial. But the idea here is that you are dealing with the technology in a comprehensive manner. You aren't dealing with it in a piecemeal manner the way industry or even the way in which different agencies and the government do. So you're putting in place hopefully a small group whose job is to comprehensively be Think about the development of a technology when thresholds were about to cross that created new dangers. They could be open to and listening to and working with all the different stakeholders and be sensitive to the considerations they were bringing up. So that's more the idea here, the idea is that you want a nimble flexible body that that is taking into account all the trajectories within an emerging technology and not just suppressing one problem or another.
1: Yeah, and, and and to that to the to the point of that piecemeal uh, effect that you had referred to before. I can imagine one sort of governmental agency that that handles one particular kind of risk or concern would have only really one aspect of a particular industry that they would care enough to want to influence because that's that's what's in their ballpark. Similarly, industry, uh, although some of them might bicker and argue a bit, in general, they, they want to have an environment where they can proliferate their own profitability. Some, sometimes those are uh, policies that would sort of box each other out. Sometimes that's you know the lessening of, of certain governmental guidelines or taxing or things along those lines. So the, the industry has their own kinds of concerns you're talking about. Having an established individual group, maybe by technology, maybe by, uh, uh, I can't imagine it would be geographical area, it'd have to be by individual technology, where they were thinking, how, how are we going to govern this entire technological domain from all these perspectives? So how are these, how are these different arbitrary policies coming together to sort of hopefully make the world better and safer? Uh, and, and produce some kind of aggregate process, uh, progress. Is that what you're, you're speaking that, to?
2: That, that's basically the idea there. So they aren't there to stop the development of the technology. They aren't there to, to further it if it's going to be dangerous, but they're there to, to right. in one sense, help us think through what kind of mechanisms need to be put in place so that the technology develops in a safe and, and beneficial manner. But in another sense, they can be a reassuring body for the public and perhaps even be a source of of credible information to the media. So the hope is that they would be good faith brokers playing off the different concerns, listening to the various stakeholders and trying to forge a a body of policy, a body of mechanisms that serve the broader interest, that serve the public good. facilitated the ability of industry to move forward and develop these technologies. Got it. And and in that sense, they would not be beholden to any one group or committed to any one approach. So think of artificial intelligence and the calls that have been coming out recently for demonstrably beneficial and controllable AI. There may be solutions to that, there may be ways to proceed forward that are largely um, scientific approaches, but there may also be some areas in which you need oversight, you need testing, you need setting of standards, or you may need government regulations to, incl- to ensure that there's a way of punishing people who do introduce dangerous devices.
1: Yes, so so it wouldn't just be, you know, the the arbitrary. Uh, you know, uh, influences of the FTC or or of individual companies that want to uh, sway lobbyists one way or another, we'd, we'd have somebody that's that's aiming to think about those grander ethical consequences and bringing them to light. And then hopefully, as you had said, maybe bringing that level of transparency to media as well um, so that there, there's a, a holistic perspective on the technology, not just within government, but hopefully that can be shared with the the outside world too so that people are open... To not just the fragments, but the whole.
2: And this kind of a body would defer to in terms of what was its responsibility. But, for example, now we have drones in public airspace and the uh, Federal Aviation Administration was to set standards. But the Federal Aviation Administration really has no jurisdiction over privacy concerns or surveillance concerns, for that matter. So they're setting these standards and they're giving licenses for people to fly drones in domestic airspace, but that leaves open these big questions of privacy and surveillance. And not only that, by moving ahead, they have suddenly alerted every government, state government and city government, to the fact that they're going to have to carry financial burdens in terms of ensuring the privacy and safety within their own domain domains yeah. as these drones get introduced. So nobody's addressing the problem in a comprehensive way. And that and that's the real difficulty, particularly when you're dealing with federal agencies whose whose areas are divided up and which are often not even funded to to oversee all the areas that they are mandated by by Congress to be responsible for. So they do really limited oversight. They don't necessarily do full or or effective oversight. And particularly when you're dealing with very complex um, technologies, you need a vast variety of different agencies involved because they all have oversight over different areas. So during the Bush administration, and I write about this a bit um, in the, Chapter 14 of A Dangerous Master, there was concern about developing a hydrogen economy. This was the Bush administration's favored means to address the the energy crisis or or the energy challenges we have. But before industry and investors would invest in building the infrastructure for a hydrogen economy or even doing some of the fundamental research, they wanted to know up front what kinds of government oversight they would encounter as they moved along and what kinds of government regulations they would encounter. And at that point, a member of the Bush administration, uh, Vicki Sutton, uh, she brought together the many different agencies that would have oversight over different aspects and tried to forge together a plan that they all signed off on in order to give industry a good enough idea of what kind of regulatory framework it would encounter if it succeeded in developing the hydrogen economy
1: hmm. and, and and she she did in fact at least get them together to to come up with some fruitful did, notion
2: and she and she made them all sign off on it
1: oh fantastic so i mean there's 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 been rays of hope we could say
2: There've been rays of hope, and uh, you know there have been little examples here and there that we can draw upon. But there, ha- there really isn't anything effectively in place to to comprehensively oversee the development of emerging technologies, largely because the emerging technologies are so different than anything we've encountered before. They aren't in just one area, but there are many areas. When you think of information technology, it's touching on every aspect of our society. When you think of the development of nanotechnology, this uh, research directed at, at, uh, at engineering on a molecular and um, atomic level, you are thinking about trajectories that again could touch almost every conceivable area of our society from from the development of energy to new materials to the creation of tiny little machines that function like little manufacturing plants
1: huh. and, and and so there's maybe more of a need for that holistic perspective and inter uh, multidisciplinary uh, perspective, but but th- that's not how things have worked for an awful long time and part of me is almost surprised Wendell that you mentioned with the drone policies part of me is almost surprised that the decisions around drones do we fly them do we not fly them in X neighborhood Y neighborhood under what what uh, conditions that that would be made in an in, in arbitrary way uh, by one organization that doesn't that doesn't tackle uh whatever other concerns there might be. Privacy, I imagine, is one among many uh, potential concerns of of kind of uh, airspace issues. Um, It it seems very odd that one organization, oh, well, we're concerned about stuff blocking airplanes, so we're the ones that deal with drones, and here's the concerns. Everything else is kind of whatever. We're the ones that were tasked with this. Here's your drone policies. It it seems very odd that that's so isolated.
2: Yeah, it's very odd, but that's the way our government works. And the fact was... That soon after the Congress asked the FAA to write up some, the ACLU immediately challenged them and said, "What are you going to do about privacy issues?" And uh, they were not mandated to deal with privacy issues, and they went back to the Congress and said, "That's the case." And the Congress said, "That's not your problem. Just go ahead and formulate rules." So it's clear that there were pressures to to respond to the the commercial interests, companies that had created drones for warfare, um, and for different groups within, um, within the society, everything from researchers to police departments that wanted to use drones. So they did go ahead and they formulated these guidelines. But again, as pointed out, nothing was done about privacy and surveillance. And furthermore, we had these situations where a drone landed on the White House lawn or a drone landed on on the property just outside the Capitol building. Well, that's just an example of how suddenly everyone in government all around the country is realizing that they have some safety and security and privacy challenges and they aren't getting funded to deal with these. This is not coming from the federal government and there's no tax upon anybody's selling drones and suddenly you have one other unmandated expense for all local and state governments.
1: Yeah, yeah, something that that they have to kind of deal with on their own so to speak. Um
2: and this and, is not unusual. I mean, this unfortunately this the, this kind of thing happens all the time.
1: And um it 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 would appear as though some even just from the fact that some of these technologies influence so many different domains, it would seem as though to reflect that in policy would mean having people from different domains as part of the policy. I don't understand all of the ins and outs, but there is a very logical connection there. I imagine things get all the more complex uh, when we talk about uh, international concerns and considerations. You're going to Canada on a Fulbright not too long from now to do research on, on just this sort of, of uh, soft and hard governance and, and how different agencies deal with, juggle and handle uh, emerging technology uh, innovation and, and, and kind of uh, buttressing against maybe some potential risks there. Um, look, if, if a policy is set up in, let's say, Canada that really manages nanotech or really manages AI or really manages Gentech exceptionally well, um, you know, as you had mentioned, information technology, it's, it's not like, it's not something that sits in the middle of one country and doesn't blend over into the other one all, all the time. If, if, if we have some great safety and governance and transparency procedures in one country about some, some potentially dangerous and powerful technologies that aren't adhered to by others, um, shucks, you know, uh, maybe, maybe they're, they're borderline worthless in some sense. How do we deal with, uh, this consideration of of some semblance of global policy. I know that when it comes to nuclear uh, technologies, for example, there is some semblance of UN respected aggregate um, you know rules. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, when when Syria or was it Syria that was using chemical weapons on its own people, when basically. Yes, but- yeah and it was it, I think the uh Russia and the u s both kind of cracked down at the same time and we're we're probably not exactly like on the same team all the time about everything right now uh on the aggregate but you know in that instance okay everybody sort of gets it you, you you don't chemical bomb people not not innocent people uh not random people and so okay so we have some rules it appears as though people are adhering to those how do we expand that to broader emerging tech, how might that be able to roll forward in the world? Because that seems like a, a really hard nut to crack.
2: It's a very hard nut to crack, but actually there are a lot of different venues on which that can proceed forward. So what you're talking about, about biological and chemical warfare, um, there are treaties against that, and nearly all countries, including Syria, have been signatories to that treaties. And those treaties go back to after World War I when it was realized that, uh, that the use of those weapons was so devastating. Um, And they really couldn't be controlled very well. So suddenly you have a bad actor in the midst of an international government, governance world, that's really often referred to as the laws of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, which, which govern the consensus around how war, what are the grounds that justify going to war and how should war be conducted in a way, for example, that it doesn't harm civilians, that, yeah. it, that it's largely about combatants. So those international standards have evolved. In the case of the laws of armed conflict, they've evolved over over 2,000 years, and they're constantly being added to. So more recently, uh, cluster bombs and the use of lasers to blind troops on battlefields all got added to... To the laws of, of armed conflict. Wow. Right now there's an international campaign to outlaw the use of lethal autonomous weapons. Yep, yep. Basically robots both pick their own targets and dispatch them without a human directly involved in that decision in, re, in real time. So whether that will succeed or not, we don't know because robotic warfare is a little bit more complicated. There's some There's some ethical arguments for it. For example, it does not, it does not lead to the death of your, you know, it saves lives, at least of your own troops, if you have robot soldiers rather than than human soldiers. So we'll see how that works out. And it's not yet clear whether we're going to get a consensus, but that is working its way through international circles, basically through the UN's conventional on conventional weapons, and also through humanitarian rights um, agencies. So, So perhaps that will be something that we can forge consensus around. The use of technology to mitigate the effects of global warming, that's another area where it has been recognized that the attempts to Lower the effects of global warming through through technology, or at least some of the ways that might be used, could actually, in the end, become more dangerous than what they supposedly are are helping us deal with global climate change. So that's been recognized worldwide, and you have meetings of the U.N. seeing if some standards could be set for the testing and use of various forms of geoengineering that would not just affect your country but would affect other countries. So we're not talking about things like like painting roofs uh, yeah,
1: like yeah, yeah. to
2: reflect light or planting trees. We're talking about things like seeding the atmosphere to reflect sunlight away from the earth And that could not only affect your atmosphere, but could affect other countries. And it could get caught up in the complex feedback loops within the upper atmosphere that could change climate in ways that we hadn't anticipated. So we do get those areas in which there is general consensus. The real problem is when you're dealing with a technology that some societies think is truly dangerous and other societies don't. So in Europe, you've got this concern over genetically modified foods and organisms that we don't really have very strongly in the United States. In a more recent example, you've got this new technology for editing genes known as CRISPR. Yep. And CRISPR um, doesn't do anything that we couldn't do before by other technological means. It just does it much easier and more quickly. And therefore, it opens the door to a lot of testing and modification of the genome, both non-human genetic material and human genetic material. And that could have all kinds of consequences, both in terms of what do you do, what is appropriate to do with human genetic material, but also What kinds of new organisms or animals do we really want to introduce into the environment? When is it a good idea and when is it a bad idea? So recently you have a lot of these engineers in synthetic biology, these scientists working in this new field of synthetic biology, say that we really need to address standards for this area. And some even said we need a moratorium on using that technology to alter the human genome in any way. And immediately when they announced this call for for a moratorium, news came out of China that China was already using the technology to modify um, the human genome to try and treat a blood disease. And it doesn't look like the Chinese at all want to necessarily honor humans, excuse me, U.S. standards for for when we should or should not deal with genetic material. And yet there are very serious issues about what kind of oversight we can put in place for the development of biotechnologies.
1: And so it seems as though with respect to nuclear and chemical weapons, um, there's, you know, you had phrased it in an interesting way that it's, it's kind of the, the aggregate acceptable thought that, that people have decided to nod their head towards to being reasonable for, for all of us across the board under X circumstances. You know, in war, we all get it and we can all sort of, you know, we all understand, okay, you know, we, we respect these. Um, it, that, that's almost how you phrased it in some ways, that's safe to say.
2: it's not clear to people whether they respect those guidelines or not. So let's say when the campaign to ban killer robot weapons, there were very few of us in the world who really understood why that was an issue. So it's taken a long time to educate. There've been a lot of debates, there's been a lot of uh, analysis about whether robotic weapons are really the kinds of weapons you can even put under an arms control agreement. So that discussion has been moving on, but suddenly you now have thousands of scientists just in the last few weeks, um, scientists in the fields of artificial intelligence signing on saying that they think that going down the route of legal autonomous weapons is just a bad idea for a variety of reasons, particularly for the reason that we're just gonna have a robotic Arms race that could that could potentially be very dangerous. Yeah, it, it, go beyond human
1: control. And for sure, and, and it, it seems like you know, you'd mention China not necessarily maybe having the same up in arms response that, that we would or that that uh, some Americans might have. We could say with respect to altering the human genome, in, in some sense, um,
2: well, we know even in our society that there are vast differences. Oh, for sure, to for feel, f- to feel about that. And, of course, some of those differences are very caught up in um, religious beliefs and ideologies that are not shared worldwide.
1: Yep, yep. Um, and and uh, I suppose the hope, Wendell, and, and maybe some some innovation in soft and hard governance would get the, get us there, the hope is that when we see those kind of bigger thresholds of potential dangers coming and and there's enough of a consensus that we must be on the same page as a as a team, you know, team humans, you know, team living things on Earth, when it becomes evident that that is, in fact, uh, necessary, hopefully, even if we don't all agree, we can come up with some degree of, of uh, transparency and governance that can work for us all that that won't permit one country to do anything that's going to be too devastating. I don't think if China treats this blood disease, you know, uh, Terminator is going to fall from the clouds. But But at the same point, we could see that under certain circumstances there would there would have to be consensus, and I guess there's a lot of innovation to get us there.
2: And in the meantime, you basically have forward-thinking nations um, trying to forge their own ways of governing or own ways of putting in place effective oversights within their own countries. So you have that, for example, in the US and Europe. And if one of those countries succeeds, if Canada succeeds in some area, then we can all learn from their, from their success. And perhaps if let's say, individual countries have something like a governance coordinating committee. They don't have to follow Gary Marchant and my ideas, but if they put something in place that's effective, then other countries may learn from that. And then the various groups of these forward-thinking countries can try and work together and see whether they can harmonize their own their own concerns. And that can be used as a foundation to look at, at broader international oversight.
1: Well, I, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll probably be crossing my fingers for the same kinds of international debate and, and thought around these concerns as you are, Wendell. And I'm glad that we got to dig into some of these ideas. Thanks so much for being able to join us here on the Tech Emergence podcast again.
2: I'm most appreciative that you took the time to, to talk about this, Dan. Well,
1: that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence podcast. And thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives, top researchers, and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website thanks as always for tuning in and i'll catch you next week